Доброго вечора. Good evening. Hello, Ігор. Привіт. Привіт. У мене є світло інтернет, тому, в принципі, я щаслива людина. So, hello everyone. I have electricity, water, internet. So, I'm a very happy person. Yeah, so... Actually, uh, I went on foot uh, from my work uh, to my home uh, yesterday because subway didn't work from the noon uh, until the end of yesterday, until the end of the day in Kyiv. And people uh, use subway stations as hubs to work or to have some internet because when there is uh, no electricity, there is no also internet, uh, you can't call uh, other people, and it's really a terrible situation, but I know that uh, Ukraine will win, we will overcome uh, all hardships, and my main task, uh, as hopefully interesting historian, scholar, and journalist, promote the knowledge and understanding of uh, British-Ukrainian relations, what Britain and Ukraine have in common, had in common in the past and what have in common now and I will outline some basic information about our relations in the past why it matters now yeah like uh, the main reason uh, why today we created with uh, Alona this spontaneous space is actually one person he was uh, Alona do you want to talk about that? no it's not, not, nothing urgent uh, so like uh, Uh, one uh, person is for me a symbol of British-Ukrainian strategic uh, relationship. Uh, it's uh, Stefan Terlecki. He was uh, DP, departed person uh, at the end of the Second World War. Uh, he was uh, Osterbeiter, uh, actually slave uh, in the Third Reich. Uh, he was uh, from uh, Western Ukraine. It's uh, Ivano-Frankivsk. Uh, region now and his surname is actually Polish uh, and in some books you may find that uh, he was Polish but actually he was Ukrainian and he sorry to interrupt uh, what's his name again so that I can find him and maybe put up in the nest something about Stefan Terletsky got it thank you so uh, Stefan Terletsky after he uh, migrated to Britain in 1948 And actually, 1948 is a very interesting year in uh, British history because uh, at the same time, the first uh, ship uh, with Caribbean migrants with name Windrush uh, arrived to Britain. And uh, from 1948, uh, we can talk about migration to Britain from uh, Then, uh, back then colonies and after that uh, former colonies of Great Britain uh, from Caribbean, from Africa and so this Windrush generation is like a very important uh, phenomenon especially for Caribbean because those people were from Caribbean colonies Jamaica, Barbados and other Tobago and so I am a historian uh, and my specialization is British history I uh, defended a thesis about uh, British colonial and post-colonial policy in the Caribbean colonies during the contemporary period uh, from 1930s to 1983. And so uh, I can talk a lot about the British West Indies or British Caribbean, but uh, now I want to talk about Ukraine. And so Stefan Terlesky arrived in Britain in 1948 without money, without, uh, you know, anything connections. 
he started to work uh, in different jobs, and in 1960s he became a very influential person in Wales. So he was the owner of some hotels, restaurants. Later, he was responsible for sports in Cardiff City Council. And he was a big fan of football and Cardiff City Football Club. It's like he, it was his child during the 1960s and 1970s. And so Terletsky, in 19. In late 1960s, uh, joined uh, the Conservative Party, and he was truly conservative person. He believed uh, in uh, that uh, if uh, someone is uh, working very hard, uh, then this person can have uh, a prosperous future, and so on, so on. During the 1970s, Stefan Terletsky tried uh, to become British MP from the Conservative Party. But uh, as you know, Wales was at the time uh, the main region in election staff uh, for Labour Party. Why uh, Trelet became uh, a British MP from, uh, uh, from the third time. And so it was uh, in 1983. But actually, his uh, like, uh, main part of our biography is that Stefan Trelecki was the economic advisor of Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was famous for her new vision of economic policy, Thatcherism, and in late uh, 1970s, it was a big economic and energy crisis in Britain. Taxation uh, is a situation when you have uh, from one uh, side uh, inflation, and uh, from the other side you have like a lot of people doesn't have okay, unemployment, a high level of un- unemployment. And so Britain and other Western countries uh, in the 1970s, they didn't know how to figure out from that economic crisis. And actually, the main reason of that crisis was uh, uh, the embargo of Arab countries in 1973 um, because of uh, American support of Israel. So this uh, geopolitical uh, reason uh, caused uh, a huge economic crisis in the West. Uh, and uh, from the 1970s, we can, uh, we can see the emergence of alternative uh, sources of energy, solar energy, wind energy, and other ones. And Britain was in a big trouble at the time, and uh, a lot of mines were nationalized as well as uh, companies like British Airways, and so uh, Thatcher decided uh, to provide a big uh, privatization of industry in Britain and uh, to close uh, a lot of mines and other plants and factories. Thatcher was very like revolutionary in this uh, neoconservative stuff. And uh, Terletsky was also neoconservative, Question. Yeah. I have a question. Can I, I'm going to be the ignorant person <laughs> here. Uh, so tell me about neoconservatism. What is it? Um, neoconservatism is uh, a term uh, of uh, political, uh, I would say, not ideology, but rather philosophy. Its main uh, period of time is the 1970s, 1980s. Like what was uh, what were its main uh, features is like first of all minimum taxation, 
more privatization, uh, like less state in economy, traditional values, and uh, more more hard geopolitical position towards the uh, Soviet Union. I'm not a, an economist, uh, but uh, I can say that uh, like uh, one of the most preeminent uh, economists, John Keynes, uh, he like his ideas more involvement of state in economy. Uh, they prevailed uh, during the post-war period in Britain, and uh, actually. Uh, almost all cabinets after the Second World War in Great Britain. You can't find uh, the differences between uh, conservative and labor economic policy. And so uh, this period uh, is called in British history a consensus. And so actually Margaret Thatcher, uh, with her policies, like uh, she destroyed this consensus. And so neoconservatism was a very broad phenomenon. In the United States of America, neoconservatives were Ronald Reagan, uh, another person who destroyed the Soviet Union. Uh, he was, uh, during the 80s, the president of the United States of America. Also, I want to name uh, uh, Jean Kirkpatrick. Uh, she was the first uh, woman U.S. special envoy in the United Nations. And uh, her, uh, she, she has uh, her own geopolitical doctrine, Kirkpatrick doctrine. And in a few words, like uh, Kirkpatrick po- pointed out that uh, USA uh, has to support uh, far-right dictatorships in Latin America because they uh, fight uh, with communism. But, uh, if uh, there are human rights violations in this country, repressions towards uh, their own society, uh, we have to support them. And uh, uh, Kirkpatrick uh, didn't uh, support the uh, Falklands War when uh, Britain uh, responded uh, to this uh, aventure action of uh, Argentina uh, in the South Atlantic, and uh, that's why it was this clash uh, between uh, Kirkpatrick and Thatcher. Uh, and so neoconservatism uh, was uh, like uh, main uh, political philosophy in the West uh, during the 1970s and 1980s, and it uh, destroyed uh, that uh, post-war priority only on uh, social sphere only on building welfare state. And so neoconservatism, like at, at that time, it was truly neoconservatism during the 70s and 80s. Uh, yes, we can talk also about uh, neoconservatives uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. For example, uh, Gerbert Walker Bush, uh, American president, can be also named as a neoconservative. Dick Cheney also, but uh, at the same time, for me, only those persons. So, uh, and uh, neoconservatism uh, was uh, uh, the philosophy which uh, helped uh, to destroy Soviet Union. Because uh, during the 1970s, it was a time of uh, the tan, this soft 
relations between the West and the Soviet Union. For example, like German Ostpolitik, German East Policy, when uh, Germany decided to start getting energy from the Soviet Union. And uh, from the beginning of the 1970s, we can talk about this German dependence on Russia and on Moscow oil and gas and coal. But at the same time, Reagan and Thatcher, uh, at the end of the 1970s, they decided that it's time to end uh, this, uh, to, to finish uh, this, uh, uh, this policy. So we... Uh, this policy of appeasement with Moscow, and so they had this more like hard position to have more hard position, uh, not to to trade with Soviet Union, but at the same time to uh, to win uh, them in the, in the Cold War. And uh, Terlesky, uh, Stefan Terlesky, was that person who told uh, Margaret Thatcher that Russia is empire, no matter what uh, political, no matter what political regime is there, terrorist Russia, communist Russia, um, I don't know, uh, Perestroika of Gorbachev was a political regime. Russia uh, is always uh, an empire. And uh, Thatcher uh, she didn't uh, have uh, like particular Ukrainian policy, but uh, Thatcher uh, was really the first politician in the West uh, who told uh, that uh, who told publicly that we can have uh, we can do a business with Gorbachev, and uh, Gorbachev uh, in the nineteen uh, like at the beginning of the 1980s, he became more powerful in uh, in Soviet uh, political uh, elite, and uh, he represented Soviet Union abroad. And uh, during one of his uh, official visits uh, to Britain, he met Thatcher, and then uh, they started to work. But uh, Terlesky, I like I, I studied uh, to to research uh, his biography two years ago, and uh, a lot of documents uh, were were brought to Kiev from Britain uh, by uh, Ukrainian diaspora there, and also by Terlesky's uh, family, by uh, his two daughters, and uh, so. Mm, I was uh, I was very you know when everyone knows about Thatcher that uh, she was the first prime minister woman in Great Britain uh, that uh, she has done uh, very good reforms in economy and and so on and so on yes, yes. but. At the same time, uh, unfortunately, not a lot of people know about Ukrainian who helped her to provide these economic forms and to advise her in geopolitical stuff uh, in foreign affairs. 
and uh, Trotsky also told the Thatcher that uh, after the reunification of uh, Germany, Western Germany in 1990, Germany would become uh, the leader of Europe, uh, and that's the problem. And uh, on the sidelines, uh, Thatcher wrote uh, it like brilliant, magnificent idea. Yeah? And uh, it was back in uh, 1989. Yeah? And I think uh, that uh, Trelecki yeah, is that person uh, with whom, uh, with which help we can understand uh, better British political life. Uh, after the Second World War, especially uh, this period of 1970s, 1980s, but uh, like most, uh, there were a lot of actually like political, military, economic encounters between Ukraine and Britain. And uh, we can start uh, from uh, times of Rus, of the Middle Ages, of the 11th century, one of uh, the main. Uh, Kievan princess was Yaroslav the Wise, Yaroslav Mudry, and uh, his uh, famous grandson was Volodymyr Monomach, and uh, Volodymyr Monomach uh, was famous of his... God, I guess... Like his... Like his... Head crown, uh, head crown, like this uh, crown with fuel. So, so and uh, Volodymyr Monomach uh, has wife who was uh, the daughter of last Anglo-Saxon king uh, Harold II, Gita Wessex. They have, I think, ten or twelve children. And Gita Wessex, after the Battle of Gasting, who 1066, like William uh, the Conqueror and Normans uh, won, Anglo-Saxon period ended, and uh, Norman period started in Britain, the period of centralization of uh, monarchy in England. And so Gita Wessex, she moved uh, from England to France and then uh, to Denmark. To her, to her uncle, and then uh, he, she, and then she became uh, the wife of Vladimir Sevolodovich, and uh, we have not a lot of uh, sources about uh, her, but uh, we have only some mentions in Scandinavian uh, sagas, and there was mentioned that uh, Gita Wessex. Uh, became uh, the wife of Valdemar from Rus. Yes, and so this Valdemar was Volodymyr Monomach. So here we have Gita Wessex. It's uh, the second half of the 11th century. And we also know one more dynasty marriage. But uh, Rus and uh, uh, back then, uh, Anglo-Saxon England, uh, they didn't have uh, so much connections, uh, but at the same time, uh, they had like trade and so on and so on. So this is uh, like 
medieval period of time and uh, I will move back more later to the time of uh, early modern history. I want to talk about uh, Bogdan Khmelnytsky. Bogdan Khmelnytsky was a Cossack hetman who studied a revolutionary war against uh, Rich Pospolita, against Poles. It was in the mid of the 17th century, and uh, at the same time, uh, it was English Civil, civil War, when uh, uh, part of uh, military uh, headed by Oliver Cromwell, uh, they uh, were fighting against uh, Charles uh, uh, I, who decided uh, to to ban uh, English Parliament, uh, not to have any sessions of it, and so uh, all ended uh, very bad to Charles. Uh, the first, uh, he literally lost the head from Oliver Cromwell, and uh, some historian, some historians at the end of the 19th century wrote that uh, there were some letters uh, between Cromwell and Snitsky, uh, but uh, later analysis uh, clarified that uh, it, it's false. But uh, at the same time, uh, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure that uh, Cromwell and Smilinski know about each other, and they have had uh, a lot uh, in common. Uh, they were like rebels against uh, legitimate power. They were very like repressive against uh, minorities. Yes, uh, uh, in the case of Cromwell, they were like. Irish people, Scottish people, and Irish people were the first one which uh, became uh, not slaves, but uh, actually servants in uh, newly established uh, British uh, English colonies in the Caribbean, for example, in Barbados, in Jamaica, and so Jamaica uh, was colonized during Cromwell Protectorate in 1655. And so uh, these Irish people were brought to Caribbean colonies as actually slaves, like servants. But and also uh, we know about this uh, hard uh, situation with uh, with killing of uh, Jews in Ukraine uh, during Khmelnytsky uh, War in the middle of the 17th century. So there were a lot of features, com- common features between Khmelnytsky and. Uh, Cromwell, and so, yeah, it's a big uh, uh, discussion uh, in Ukraine because Bogdan Khmelnytsky, from one point of view, he is a national hero, and uh, Kozak uh, myth uh, is a cornerstone of Ukrainian identity, like Kozaks were Christian uh, warriors who were fighting for Orthodox Church, uh, for Ukrainian identity, who were fighting for all these Ukrainian oriented stuff, uh, but at the same time uh, we have this uh, hard uh, situation with Ukrainian uh, Jewish relations, Ukrainian Polish relations, but uh, now uh, we are revisiting our history and now uh, we are talking more freely about our past uh, without 
manipulations. So, like, we have our own history, and we have had uh, some connections in the past, and now we, like, Poland is our main uh, partner of Ukraine. Uh, Poland are helping us a lot. Uh, with Israel, uh, we have more peculiar situation uh, in bilateral relations, but at the same time, uh, like, uh, we have a great uh, Jewish status in Ukraine, so we have a lot uh, to make popular the knowledge also about Ukrainian-Jewish relations. So, uh, moving back to Britain, uh, this uh, early modern period of time uh, was known uh, as the formation of constitutional monarchy in Britain, mm, this glorious uh, revolution, uh, Wilhelm uh, III, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, and, but in Ukraine, uh, uh, at that time, uh, we have Cossack uh, period, Visko uh, Zaporozhye, the Parisia army. Uh, it was like official name of that state. Mm. And uh, we have uh, Pavlo Polubotok as one of hetmans at the beginning of uh, the 17th century after Ivan Mazepa. Ivan Mazepa was a uh, hetman uh, who was very close uh, to Petro. Петр uh, II, uh, Russian Tsar uh, and then Emperor. But Ivan Mazepa decided uh, to have uh, the alliance with uh, Sweden and uh, the big uh, Northern War uh, was occurring at the time uh, in the Eastern Europe. Like uh, Sweden uh, invaded uh, Today is uh, Poland uh, and then uh, Russia, and uh, Russia has uh, defeats uh, during the second, uh, the first stage of that war. But uh, then uh, it was this uh, main win of Russia near Poltava. And uh, but for Ukraine and Sweden, it was a big defeat. And uh, Mazepa then uh, moved to today's Moldova, where he died in Bandera. But after the death of Ivan Mazepa, his successor, uh, Grigory Orlik, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Pilip Orlik. So uh, Pilip Orlik, uh, he uh, started to form uh, like Cossack-Ukrainian uh, diaspora in uh, Western Europe, uh, in Sweden, also in Great Britain, and other Western countries, and his uh, uh, brother Grigory Orlik uh, became uh, general lieutenant of French uh, Royal Army, and Grigory uh, uh, Orlik was also French diplomat, and so uh, about Pavlo Polubotok. So after uh, like Grigory Orlik moved abroad, uh, Pavlo Polubotok was uh, hetman here in Ukraine, and uh, it was this 
myth about uh, Polobotok treasury and like they were brought to England and uh, some part of the Bank of England was like uh, the money of Kozak uh, Hetman. But uh, it's a fairy tale and uh, you know we can't claim any any checks to Britain in this case. So, but for me, the most interesting time of Ukrainian-British encounters was the modern period of time, the 19th century. First of all, because of Crimean War in the middle of the 19th century, 1853-1856, like very briefly, Russian Empire decided uh, to be more powerful in uh, the Middle East, in uh, Jerusalem, and the uh, uh, Russian Empire wanna, wanted to be like main uh, Christian uh, power in the region, but as you know, Ottoman Empire was at that time, uh, controlled at that time uh, Middle East, and uh, Jerusalem particularly, and uh, it was this conflict in Jerusalem between uh, who will have uh, the keys from uh, some very important uh, sites for Christianity. And so Russia decided to start uh, the war against the Ottoman Empire, Russian Empire started to invade Ottoman Empire and uh, France uh, and Britain decided uh, to help Ottoman Empire to fight against Russia and Britain and France invaded uh, Crimea. As you know, Crimea is Ukraine, another reminder. Uh, and uh, British armed forces uh, built uh, the first uh, railway on the Ukrainian territory. Uh, its name uh, was uh, Big Central Crimean Railway. Uh, it was near Balaklava. And near Balaklava, there is a British memorial where British uh, soldiers. Uh, are buried, uh, and uh, also one very important fact uh, from the Crimean War, we have uh, one very popular type of clothing, Reglan, and uh, Lord Reglan, he was uh, the commander-in-chief of British Army in Crimea, he lost uh, the arm uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, and then uh, they uh, designed the new type of clothing especially for him. And uh, from that time, from the middle of the 19th century, we have Reglan as, uh, as one particular type of clothing due to this British commander. And so Crimean War is uh, one of main uh, uh, events and phenomena in British history, because uh, like uh, 
a lot of uh, military innovations, a lot of, as I said, uh, closing, closes, and other and other we have from the time. Uh, photography as uh, a phenomenon uh, started uh, during the Crimean War, and so for Britain, Crimean War is something very, very important for British identity. And after Russian Empire lost uh, in the Crimean War, a new young Russian Emperor Alexander II uh, decided uh, finally to <laughs> to reform the country. Sorry, and, to, do, to do what? Uh, I missed it. To uh, to, um, to reform the country, reform reform in the country. And so uh, Alexander II, like the main outcome of uh, Alexander II reform was uh, uh, more, more investments uh, from Great Britain, from France, from Belgium, like these three main uh, Western countries, uh, they invested a lot in Russian Empire, but specific, specifically in uh, um, contemporary Ukraine, in Ukrainian lands, and uh, they uh, invested in uh, mining industry, they invested in plants and factories, in all other things. So the uh, foreign uh, capital uh, formed the uh, Ukrainian industry. And one of uh, people who formed uh, Donbass as uh, uh, industrial heart of uh, Ukraine was uh, Welsh engineer John Hughes. And uh, that's why the first uh, name of Donetsk city was Yuzivka and uh, this uh, name uh, was uh, uh, until the 1930s when it was renamed in Stalino and actually Stalin decided that uh, Yuzivka back then Donetsk uh, will become uh, the center of Donetsk of, of that region but uh, there were other <clears throat> There were other cities which uh, might become uh, might become uh, centers of region, and so uh, John Hughes uh, uh, he helped to establish this mine industry in today's uh, Donetsk and uh, Lugansk regions, and so. Uh, at that time, at, 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 the, at the end of the 19th century, it was the usual thing that uh, foreign uh, businessmen, uh, foreign businesses uh, invested in Russian Empire. Dnipro, uh, city, Krivery, Nikopol, all these industrial cities of the south and east of Ukraine, uh, Dnipro, Krivery, Nikopol, Donetsk, uh, uh, Mariupol, uh, all other this, uh, uh, these cities, uh, they were uh, uh, plants, 
factories or other industry there was created by foreign people. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and so uh, actually uh, the understanding in the Russian Empire of economy as some particular sphere of governance uh, appeared uh, during the reign of uh, Alexander the uh, Third. It's uh, from uh, 1881 until 1894. Mm. Because uh, before it was only serfdom, aristocrats has this serfdom, and uh, there was no capitalism in the Russian Empire, but uh, in Ukrainian territories, uh, there were active uh, businessmen, uh, for example, such uh, dynasties as Tereshenki, Saritoninki, Semerenki, and uh, they have, uh, for example, sugar business. In Ukraine, uh, sugar was produced from uh, Budaburyak. Oh, God. One second. <laughs> 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 how did i forget this um it's gonna be beet oh my god beetroot of course beetroot uh, people online must be right that i'm not a real ukrainian if i forgot the word buryaka that's it that's uh <laughs> you know the diagnosis in itself yes sugar in britain uh, was produced produced uh, in uh, caribbean islands is that what you uh, uh, were looking for? So, like, it was produced from, from the other way, but in Ukraine it was produced from <laughs> beetroot. Yep, if that's a question. Yeah, beetroot. So, uh, from beetroot. And beetroot... I think uh, it's called cane sugar. Strostnika. Um, yes, yes, yes. yes. So, so, in, in British Empire it was cane sugar. Uh, produced uh, in the Caribbean colonies, but in Russian Empire it was this beetroot uh, sugar and beetroot. One uh, another interesting fact uh, actually, uh, potato uh, potato was brought to Ukraine uh, only in the 18th century, and uh, when we speak about borscht as uh, one of main uh, Ukrainian meals. Mm, the main uh, parts of borscht are potato and beetroot, and uh, uh, this uh, <clears throat> potato was brought to Ukraine very lately, on the, only in the 18th century. And uh, the history of borscht is very exciting. Olena Brychenko. She's an anthropologist, and uh, she uh, has a very cool project, Yija Kultura, Food Culture. She is writing and uh, commenting a lot about uh, Ukrainian food culture. <clears throat> and so Ukrainian uh, middle class and Ukrainian businesses in the 19th century, they, they have made their capital from growing beetroot and other uh, agrarian cultures and uh, they were 
also exported uh, to Europe. And so not only grain, but also other agrarian products. <clears throat> and so uh, this, uh, all, uh, this Black Sea ports, uh, Odessa, other uh, ports, uh, they were like the main uh, trading centers of uh, the Russian Empire. <clears throat> and so uh, at the end of the 19th century, there was also one very, one truly global encounter connected with Britain and Ukraine, like uh, Valdemar Havkin, uh, he was an uh, epidemiologist, uh, his uh, professor was Ilya Mechnikov, Ilya Mechnikov was uh, a Nobel Prize uh, winner in uh, physiology, and uh, Odessa National University is named by Ilya Mechnikov. And Ilya Mechnikov at the end of the 19th century was one of main uh, uh, worldwide uh, famous uh, scientists in uh, bacteriology and all this stuff. And Valdemar uh, Havkin, uh, he, he left uh, the Russian Empire. He was from Berdyansk. Uh, Berdyansk uh, is a city in uh, the Parisian region, it's a port, and uh, it's occupied by the Russian occupiers, but uh, we will deliberate all of the territories, and so uh, actually Berdyansk and uh, Mariupol are two main uh, cities where Greek uh, diaspora, Greeks, uh, has been living there for a long period of time, but uh, we don't know uh, what is happening with them right now under the Russian situation. It's a very <clears throat> tragic, tragic part of our history. <clears throat> and so, uh, originally from Bredyansk, uh, Valdemar Havkin, being a Jew, he studied in uh, Odessa. Odessa is a truly cosmopolitan city, Ukrainian city, where a lot of uh, where people of different nationalities live, uh, and uh, during the reign of Alexander III in 1880s, he it was a big anti-Semitism in the Russian Empire, and uh, Russian anti-Semitism, its main aim was to blame uh, Jews for all current problems in the, in the country. And so uh, Russia... Uh, and Russians, uh, they are like uh, they they are racist uh, actually, and so it's uh, we it, it was not uh, only uh, in the case of uh, Ukrainians uh, this uh, oppressive stuff, but also against. As well, and so Hafkin decided to move to Europe with uh, Professor Ilya Mechnikov, and there he uh, has done a brilliant career. Uh, but which uh, governor of British India, Lord Curzon, told uh, Hafkin, Valdemar, you see, we have cholera in uh, British India, and we need uh, to uh, to do something. And actually, Valdemar Hamkin was one of the first uh, promoters 
of mass vaccination. And he moved to British India. British India is contemporary Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, four countries. And the British colonial administration in India, they, uh, they decided to do only a hard uh, quarantine measures, uh, so uh, no one could travel or something like that. And as you know, uh, India is famous for its uh, religious plurality, like Muslims, uh, uh, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, other religions. So Havkin was shocked uh, by seeing this, and uh, he he invented vaccine, uh, and uh, before before vaccinate uh, other people, Indians, he vaccinated himself, and uh, that's why uh, Ukrainian Jew Valdemar Havkin uh, was called uh, Mahatma. It means uh, saint. In uh, India, we know about Mahatma Gandhi, and so Valdemar Havkin from Odessa was also Mahatma. <clears throat> and it's uh, because of willing of uh, with the governor of British India, Lord Curzon, who liked to hunt uh, Bengali tigers with his wife. <clears throat> and also, uh, Lord Curzon uh, is famous. Uh, by so-called Curzon Lion, uh, which was the first uh, 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 the first Polish-Ukrainian border in 1990. And so here we are at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, this growing rivalry between uh, Germany and Britain, uh, Germany and uh, Russian Empire, and uh, Britain and the Russian Empire were alive uh, during the First uh, World War. And uh, what is interesting about uh, Ukraine and Britain in the First World War is that Ukrainian uh, political Naval uh, who was uh, who migrated to Canada, Canada back then uh, was. Uh, British Dominion, it's a self-governing colony. Uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, all these uh, white uh, settlement colonies, they were dominions of the British Empire. And Philippe Noval moved to Canada, and then he fought uh, for the British Empire in Britain, in Europe, and uh, uh, he was awarded Victoria Cross, and Victoria Cross uh, is one of the main uh, orders uh, for military and so Philip Konoval yes there is a monument uh, to him in Ottawa and Philip uh, Konoval is one of the main military figures in Ukrainian British Canada history <clears throat> so Philip Konoval it's uh, 1917 George uh, the Fifth uh, the cousin of uh, Nikolai II, uh, the last uh, 
Russian Emperor, and they were very... Вони були дуже схожі обличчями. They were, they looked alike? Yeah, they looked alike. George V and Nikolai II. Uh, with the same birds and, and so on and so on. And uh, after uh, Russian Empire fallen into pieces in 1917, after the fall of uh, monarchy, Ukraine uh, started to build its own uh, independence, Ukrainska Central Rada, then uh, Ukrainian state, Ukrainska Derzhava, Pavlo Skoropatsky, so all this like four years from 
And so this principle uh, became a fundament of the League of Nations and then the United Nations. Uh, and so uh, like uh, three, three empires uh, uh, grow, uh, three empires uh, fell apart, uh, uh, Austria-Hungary, Russian Empire, Ottoman Empire, and Ukrainian uh, land were in Austria-Hungary, it's uh, Western Ukraine, uh, Galicia, Transcarpathia, and uh, Bukovina, and uh, all other Ukrainian lands were in Russian Empire. And so uh, in 1919, uh, Britain and France didn't want to have uh, didn't want to have uh, independent Ukraine from the other uh, due to other reason because Britain and France uh, supported uh, uh, the white movement. Uh, this uh, military and politicians. Uh, uh, who supported uh, re-establishing uh, monarchy in Russia, and uh, they were like main rivals of uh, Bolsheviks, of Red Army, and uh, that's why they uh, didn't want to support uh, republics like Belarus, National Republic, Ukrainian National Republic and all these other republics. Yes, they wanted uh, to secure uh, their investments in Russian Empire. And yeah, so coming back uh, to my story about the end of the 19th century. And so they, they didn't see why uh, we need to have the independent Ukraine. Yes, and uh, so... Uh, Ukraine uh, didn't have so much uh, resources uh, to fight uh, this information war in uh, in the Europe. And yes, uh, Ukrainian diplomats uh, they uh, brought uh, a big map of uh, Ukrainian ethnic uh, territories uh, at the uh, Paris Peace Conference. Uh, but uh, this uh, <clears throat> this Polish factor and white uh, movement factor they prevailed uh, in British and French uh, foreign policy in uh, towards Ukraine and actually Britain uh, was uh, responsible more for for the Baltic states and uh, with help of uh, British uh, Navy. Baltic states uh, gained uh, independence in 1918 and uh, they were independent uh, until uh, Soviet Union occupied them at the beginning of the Second World War in 1940. And so uh, Estonia, Latvia, and uh, Lithuania, uh, those countries were like... Uh, part of their influence of Great Britain and uh, France was uh, and and the Ukraine was a part of French fair influence in Eastern Europe. Uh, yeah, it's 
it's a very complicated story and we can have a particular space about uh, the times of uh, 1970 1921 so uh, i want to move um, to the soviet period uh, so uh, Britain and the Soviet Union, uh, they have had good trade relations, but uh, when we talk about Britain and Ukraine uh, during the interval period, uh, I want to say about uh, Garrett Jones. He was a Welsh journalist and uh, he interviewed uh, Adolf Hitler and uh, he visited the Soviet Union at the end of the 1920s. And uh, he saw that people in, in uh, Soviet Ukraine were starving. He wrote uh, his report, actually true reports about the real situation uh, in Soviet Ukraine. And later on, uh, he was in uh, Manchuria in Far East in 1935. And uh, Holodomor, man-made uh, famine in Ukraine uh, during 1932-1933. Actually, famine was also in uh, Bany and in uh, the region near Volga. And Ukrainians also lived in Kuban. And so that was truly a genocide of Ukrainian people. And uh, Ukraine... Uh, is uh, negotiating uh, with other countries uh, to to recognize it as the genocide of Ukrainian nation, Ukrainian nation in political terms, like not only Ukrainians but also other ethnic minorities who lived here at the time, for example, Bulgarians, Jews, Greeks, and other people. And uh, during the... Can I interrupt for a second? Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. Um, so we hosted uh, Spaces with uh, with you a couple of weeks ago to commemorate um, Holodomor Remembrance Day. And so I'll put up that in the nest. And also um, there was, in fact, three Holodomors in Ukraine um, in 1921-23. In 1932-33, that was the worst one. And then in 1946-47, and as a result of these uh, famines, millions of Ukrainians died. And um, right now, something that's happening on social media that's important and I wanted to highlight is is that um, Twitter, for example, doesn't take enough uh, steps to um, tackle um, the more denialism. And so whenever you see uh, tweets that um, kind of create uh, aim to create doubt or outright deny um, Holodomora, please do report them. And I also have a separate page about that that I put up in the nest. It's very important. The reason why it's very important is because by denying or doubt, questioning the uh, fact of the previous genocide, Russians are normalizing uh, the denial of the current and going one, and that is um, that's why it's very important that we don't tolerate it and we call it out when we see it and report it. Thank you. Uh, yes, and I wanna say, uh, except uh, Garrett Jones, a Welsh journalist, <clears throat> I wanna mention also Lancelot Walton. He was a British military historian, economist. 
and uh, he wrote uh, a lot of articles about Ukraine uh, uh, at the beginning of uh, 1930s, and uh, he was one of active uh, members of uh, English-Ukrainian committee, and uh, he uh, and uh, he he has uh, his probably one of the most famous speech. Its name is the Ukrainian question and its importance to Great Britain. And uh, it was on the 29th of May in 1935. So like uh, famine ended in Soviet Ukraine. And uh, like one of the reasons why famine happened is that uh, Soviet Union needed equipment uh, for the industrialization. And it was like barter, yeah, like uh, Soviet Union exported uh, agrarian products, uh, first of all, grain from Ukraine uh, to Britain. And Britain uh, exported uh, some military uh, industry equipment to Soviet Union. And so uh, Lawton uh, said uh, in 1935 that uh, Ukrainian nation is reality and which uh, has... Uh, uh, as a fundament of at least 1,000 years of authentic history. No one nation uh, didn't fight so hard as Ukrainians to have their own independence, and uh, Ukrainian land uh, is all in uh, blood. And so this speech of Lawton uh, was uh, like one of... It was very important and... During the interview period, actually, it was uh, it was an idea to have that with Ukrainian studies in Great Britain, but this it, it failed, and uh, Ukrainian studies in Britain started only at the in, in the seventies, and so uh, wo- Second World War, Britain and uh, Soviet Union were allies. Uh, but Britain and France had uh, plans uh, to had plans to bomb uh, oil basements uh, in Caucasus when it was the Winter War. Winter War when Soviet Union invaded uh, Finland uh, at late uh, 1939, and uh, it was a big defeat of Soviet Union from tiny Finland uh, with the population of one million of people and uh, a lot of Ukrainians were killed uh, who were Soviet uh, who were soldiers of Red Army and that was a big defeat for Soviet Union and uh, Adolf Hitler saw it that the Soviet Union is military weak and uh, maybe it was one of reasons to invade faster the Soviet Union in 1941 but when we talk about uh, Britain and Ukraine, soldiers of Assez Halichina division, which was formed in the Third Reich and consisted of Ukrainians from the Western Ukraine, they were fighting against the uh, Red Army. And uh, these soldiers, uh, they uh, moved uh, to Britain because uh, they wanted to avoid uh, a Soviet trial because the Soviet Union wanted to execute them, and why they migrated to Great Britain. And uh, these uh, people of division, uh, 
Дивизийники, they formed Ukrainian diaspora in Britain after the Second World War, and also some Ukrainian soldiers of this division were in Canada, also in the United States, but main country was Great Britain. So yes, uh, we moved to the start of my uh, monologue about Stefan Terlecki, Uh, like uh, Stefan Terlitsky was one of very active members of Ukrainian diaspora in Britain, and uh, he was active member of uh, the Ukrainian Association in Great Britain, or Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain. Actually, Terlitsky was one of the first uh, who was very concerned about uh, Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986. And he was one of those uh, people who organized uh, manifestations in London to say uh, truth about the Chernobyl uh, disaster, that the uh, Soviet Union was lying about it to the people, and uh, so it was a tragedy of Ukraine. And Terlecki became, uh, he was awarded the Order of the British Empire in 1992. Uh, by the Queen uh, Elizabeth II, and his uh, like uh, his main idea was that Ukraine must be the integral part of West, and the West uh, must uh, provide Ukraine with all help, uh, economic support, uh, financial support, military support, and so he wrote that Ukraine must become the leader of Europe. And when we talk about European integration, you know that Margaret Thatcher, she was Eurosceptic and was against the formation of the European Union. Actually, she lost post of prime minister because it was this uh, rivalry of other politicians who wanted Europe, more European integration and who wanted more British part uh, in the European integration. And uh, John Major was that person who. Signed uh, that document, which formed the European Union in 1992. <laughs> another, <laughs> another very fun fact about John Major. So uh, John Major uh, was uh, that Prime Minister who visited Ukraine with official visit in April 1996. And what's more interesting is that uh, I have found only one photo. With him in Kiev, where he eats a cucumber in the supermarket. It's one of center of Kiev. I will put this photo in the net. Alena knows this photo very well. <laughs> yeah. So and um, you know uh, Britain uh, along with the United States of America and Russia, they were the guarantees of like they were security assurances, not guarantees. In Budapest uh, memorandum, uh, the document which was signed uh, in 1994, and Major visited Kiev uh, in April 1996 uh, to deal uh, denuclearization of Ukraine uh, with uh, Ukrainian President Leonid Kuchma. British-Ukrainian relations uh, in the 90s uh, was a period of just signing some. 
basic documents, some memorandums, some other stuff, but also uh, Britain uh, during the uh, 1990s and during uh, the period of uh, Viktor Yushchenko, like 200. Britain uh, supported movement uh, of Ukraine in the European Union and NATO, and uh, there were joint military trainings uh, started, uh, for example, uh, Kozatska Bulova. But for a long period of time, uh, British prime ministers uh, didn't visit Ukraine. Uh, however, all Ukrainian presidents, uh, except uh, Viktor Yanukovych, has made official visits to Britain. Uh, when Yushchenko became uh, president uh, after the Orange Revolution in 205, uh, he wanted that Britain... Uh... Sorry to interrupt. Let's uh, give a quick summary of what happened during the Orange Revolution for those who don't know. Uh, yes, Leonid Kuchma was Ukrainian president for two terms. He was Ukrainian president for 10 years, and he supported Viktor Yanukovych. He was then the prime minister of Ukraine, uh, the guy uh, with two criminal charges. For Kuchma, Viktor Yanukovych was the best candidate uh, to be the next president. Viktor Yanukovych was the leader of Party of Regions, Party Regionev. His main political ideas, we need to hear the Donbass, we need to make the Russian language a second state uh, language, and so all this pro-Russian narrative uh, Viktor Yanukovych supported. And from the other side uh, was uh, Viktor Yushchenko, ambitious economist and politician. Uh, he was also prime minister of Ukraine before Yanukovych, and uh, he represented Western and Central Ukraine with all pro-Ukrainian narratives, with promoting Ukrainian identity. And so there were falsifications uh, during the election. Due to this, people started peace protests uh, in uh, the center of Kiev, uh, in Maidan Nezalezhnosti, the main square in, in Kiev. Orange Revolution, why is this name? Because uh, orange color was the main color of Viktor Yushchenko electoral campaign. And so uh, it was the third tour of elections where Viktor Yushchenko won. Viktor Yushchenko became the president of Ukraine. But I was in the eighth uh, <laughs> class at that time, and I remember all this, you know, teenage <laughs> political discussions. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> this politics for dummies. So um, Viktor Yushchenko became president, and uh, when Viktor Yushchenko was a president, he wanted that Britain uh, will recognize Holodomor of 1932-1933 as genocide of Ukrainian nation. He visited Britain, uh, he talked uh, with uh, then uh, Labour Prime Minister Gordon Brown, uh, and before Gordon Brown was Tony Blair. And actually, Tony Blair was the first Western politician who invited Putin to visit Britain. Like uh, the first international official visit of Putin when he became the president of Russia in the March of 2000 was Britain. And Tony Blair like uh, is responsible for this uh, growing uh, uh, Russian influence in Britain and you know there is such a term as London Grad. Yes, there is a book, London Grad, uh, written by two journalists, 
so Tony Blair, yes. And uh, Victor Yushchenko talked with Blair and Brown uh, about Voldemort, about other uh, historical stuff, but Britain uh, hasn't recognized uh, Voldemort as a genocide yet. And that's a big uh, uh, task for us now. <clears throat> so, uh, when... Uh, When uh, Yanukovych was the president of Ukraine, uh, uh, Ukraine uh, British uh, political position was following that Britain supported the signing by Ukraine uh, the association agreement with EU. Yeah, so Britain was in EU at the time. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> uh, and... Uh, Uh, and Britain supported all this uh, European uh, integration of Ukraine. But uh, when uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, invaded Crimea in the March of uh, uh, 2014, uh, Britain was one of uh, EU countries which supported really hard sanctions against Russia from the European Union. Uh, and uh, in March, April 2014, uh, Britain was negotiated uh, between uh, the United States of America and, uh, and Russia. And actually, in London, uh, there were the last uh, negotiations between the U.S. and Russia before this uh, so-called referendum in Crimea in the middle of March of 2014. Uh, and uh, beginning from uh, 2014, uh, Britain... Uh, wasn't uh, so uh, like um, in fourteen uh, fifteen Britain wasn't so active in this process of negotiations because uh, France uh, and Germany uh, played uh, this role Normandy process and uh, Minsk uh, agreement and uh, but uh, Britain uh, step by step. Uh, has been providing Ukraine with military support, with humanitarian support. Uh, Britain was active uh, in the special uh, monitoring uh, mission of OSCE. Uh, yes, we can criticize and we will deride uh, this organization, but Britain was that country which supported Ukraine uh, all this time, uh, beginning from 2014. The training uh, of Ukrainian servicemen uh, by the British instructors, Operation Orbital, started in uh, 2015, and uh, during the seven years until the start uh, of uh, the full-scale invasion of Russia on the 24th of uh, February this year, 22,000 of 
Ukrainian servicemen has been trained by British instructors here in Ukraine. So they have uh, joined uh, military training, and so this is basic training. Petro Poroshenko visited London in, uh, in the April of uh, 2017, and it was the first uh, official visit of Ukrainian president to Britain for eight years. It's a very long period of time, actually. Like, <laughs> in 2016, uh, we have Brexit referendum. The majority voted that Britain uh, will have to leave the EU. Theresa May, uh, who was the prime minister of Britain at the time, she wasn't so active in Ukrainian question and uh, but foreign minister Boris Johnson was very active and actually he visited Ukraine twice in uh, September of 2016 and uh, at the beginning of 2017. And uh, <laughs> why do you think he was more active? Well, uh, because it was uh, like Theresa May uh, was involved more in these uh, negotiations with the EU. That's why. Uh, and during uh, these visits, uh, he announced uh, more uh, support to Ukraine, more uh, military support, uh, the extension uh, of. Uh, Operation Orbital, and uh, another fun fact uh, about food history, uh, Boris Johnson ate uh, pizza in Pizza Veterano with Vitaly Kvichko, the mayor of Kiev. Pizza Veterano is, is a franchise of uh, Ukrainian veterans in the Russian-Ukrainian war, uh, headed by uh, Stalcev. Johnson and uh, Klitschko ate pizza in this uh, veterano pizza restaurant. And this... You know, there was a joke uh, going around this year that uh, somebody somebody showed Musafir to Boris Johnson because there could be no other explanation for why he was uh, seen on Ukrzelizneza trains to Kyiv so many times this year. Musafir is a very good uh, restaurant of Crimean Tatar cuisine. And it's really, has really, really yummy food. And uh, yeah, we were having suspicions that somebody showed him the restaurant because uh, there is, you know, there is no other explanations for why he would be such a frequent visitor. Yeah, so, and he visited when he was a foreign minister two times, Ukraine, Kiev. But again, uh, Brexit was main topic uh, in Britain uh, beginning from 2016. And uh, when uh, actually, uh, like for me, as uh, analyst of British-Ukrainian relations and uh, analyst of British politics, uh, mm, this uh, sales, uh, this Salisbury spies, uh, Russian spies, uh, in the March of uh, 2018. Kripal's case was a turning point in uh, British policy towards Russia and Ukraine. And actually, uh, back then, uh, Britain uh, deported uh, more than 100 Russian diplomats. I suppose uh, that uh, British, some part of British political elite 
including Boris Johnson, they understood that Russia is actually a threat uh, to the national security of the UK. And so uh, Boris Johnson became the prime minister in July of uh, 2019. And uh, I started my career as international journalist from covering uh, the conservative race uh, in June-July of uh, 2019. Uh, and there were like two people who might become the leader and the Prime Minister of Britain, Jeremy Hunt, who was uh, the Foreign Minister after Johnson in 2018-2019. Uh, uh, but Boris Johnson won and uh, that was a big uh, victory for Ukraine, actually. Like, yes, we can talk that, we can say that Russians uh, were donors of uh, Conservative Party, and there were a lot of links between Johnson and other wealthy Russians, Russian oligarchs. But I think that... Uh, Boris Johnson was that politician who public who said publicly that uh, Russia is a threat, and uh, no one in the West before 2019 uh, was talking in this manner. Yes, it was like this Minsk Agreement too. Minsk too, we had uh, this role of France and Germany as negotiators between. Ukraine and Russia, but there were no actual negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. We have had hybrid war all these years, beginning from 2014. Information war, cyber warfare, uh, economic pressure, also uh, military pressure, and uh, Ukrainian soldiers uh, were dying all these years because of uh, Russian bombings and all other this, uh, what was happening uh, in the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. And so, uh, and uh, uh, about Johnson, so in uh, 2020, one very important document uh, was uh, signed in the British Parliament. It was the report of Parliamentary Committee of Security and Intelligence, this so-called Russia report, in uh, July of 2020. And only part of it is uh, published as an open source yes, in the Internet. And so um, what's interesting that uh, there was Russia was mentioned there as a threat to Britain, and so uh, it was written uh, that Russia manipulate, was manipulating Scottish independence referendum of uh, 2014, and uh, Russia was manipulating parliamentary elections of uh, 2017, and so uh, Russian oligarchs are powerful in Britain, and they they were doing Russian propaganda to spread in these Kremlin narratives in Britain, and so like this is very bad, very bad story. And one sentence uh, for me is the quintessential of this document. It was written that the Western response 
to the annexation of Crimea in 2014 wasn't appropriate. West, uh, uh, Western countries were appeased to Russia and to Russian imperialism in Ukraine. I think that uh, only this one sentence was revolu- revolutionary. And uh, this report, uh, his publication was delayed uh, due to the activity of former Boris Johnson's advisor. Yes, I forgot to advice. No, no rush. And uh, yeah, in, in the meantime, I can talk a little bit while Sihor is um, researching the surname. Um, I've been living in the UK for the last few years, and I would say it's obviously not Ukraine. <laughs> I miss it very much. Um, and especially I've realized uh, only this year exactly how much I love it. Um, and but otherwise, I I would say that it's quite a good country to to live in. Although my friends tell me that I live in London, therefore that's not in England at all. It's like a separate uh, separate place with its own rules. Um, so yeah, uh, the people here are very supportive of Ukraine on average, and uh, a lot of uh, like most Ukrainians uh, that I know they volunteer a lot uh, from day one. And uh, yeah, the public here is like very. Um, empathetic with Ukraine. I haven't been following the British politics much, to be honest. Um, I just want to tell you that I absolutely despise uh, Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) He's been absolutely horrible uh, to the point where the things that he says uh, pretty much um, amount to genocide apologism. And Jeremy Corbyn uh, used to be the leader of uh, the Labour Party. So there is two uh, main parties in um, in the UK, uh, Conservatives, they're also called Tories, and uh, Labour. And so he was uh, left, uh, this left-leaning communist guy who pretended to be very, very righteous. Um, and uh, I was not, I, I don't, I'd never liked him, to be honest, because uh, I think as a Ukrainian person, I have... Uh, like an inborn, um, like despise for co- communists, <laughs> but uh, otherwise, you know, once uh, once the full scale invasion started, the things that he says in public are just outrageous. So yeah, not a huge fan of him. I know that um, Tories also don't have a good, repu- a great reputation among both British people, I guess, but. Um, Boris Johnson, he's been like a very uh, controversial figure, obviously. Uh, he's been involved in many scandals, um, including like one of the biggest one, I guess, was about uh, him breaking COVID rules. But he, there's been like, I don't know, dozens and dozens of scandals with Boris Johnson. And so what happened then was that uh, the British government uh, imposed uh, quite strict rules during the lockdown and uh, it was um, it was quite tough obviously uh, now thinking back about those problems that we considered problems back then it's it's uh, it's laughable but at the time it uh, seemed to me like quite a depressing part of uh, my life and so it was very strict rules you couldn't really go anywhere you couldn't see anyone and in the meantime it turned out that um he was having Christmas parties. 
with his stuff and uh there was a lot of uh there was a lot of public outrage about it um mainly because a lot of people at the time could not say uh bye to their loved ones um and so they would not be allowed in in hospital rooms and so on and so that was uh, obviously that caused a lot of um anger uh, so his uh, yeah his reputation I cannot call it stellar to be honest but um, Ukrainians are grateful on average to Boris Johnson right Ihor and it's it it's met a lot of condemnation I think from British people yeah 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 yes. so uh, the name of uh, former Boris Johnson advisor is Dominic Cummings or Benedict Cumberbatch in uh, the film uh, Brexit, The Uncivil War. So, like, uh, Dominic Cummings uh, was uh, Boris Johnson's advisor for a long period of time. And what is more surprisingly, he has never been a member of uh, the Conservative Party. And uh, Dominic Cummings was that person who pushed uh, Johnson for more active position in uh, Brexit just uh, uh, literally before the referendum and so actually Cummings is responsible for for uh, all this uh, stuff uh, which is related with Brexit and actually with uh, uh, COVID rules uh, because uh, in 2020, Cummings was those people who still advised Johnson, but later on he, he has made uh, a trip to his family in Durham. I uh, wrote at that time an article in one of Ukrainian media, Levy Berek left bank with the name of Darem Napoiska, wasteful trip. <laughs> yeah, Darem, Darem Napoiska, yeah, very uh, good. Game of words. Um, so and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, Boris Johnson and he he visited uh, Ukraine uh, on the first of February twenty twenty two, and it was the first uh, ever of it was the first official visit of British Prime Minister to Ukraine for twenty six years. Just imagine. 26 years, no one, uh, no British Prime Minister visited Ukraine. It's symbolic, and uh, later on he visited after the full scale, after the Russian full scale invasion of Ukraine uh, for three times in April, uh, in June, and uh, in uh, August. Yes, uh, he became uh, the first member of loyalty club of Ukrainian Ukrainian Railway, and then I wrote uh, a post on Facebook that uh, British Army <laughs> the first who <laughs> built <laughs> the first railway on the Ukrainian territory, so it's, everything is logical. Yeah, so, and uh, later on, Liz Truss uh, was uh, British Prime Minister for 45 days, and uh, now we have Richard Sunak, and... Uh... Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. What happened yeah. with Liz, Liz Truss? Because I went to Ukraine, right? And it's like, you know, you come out of the house and it starts some 
chaos is uh, happening there. Um, so, like by the time <laughs> I came back, she was, <laughs> by the time I came back, she wasn't a prime minister anymore, and I it just completely I completely missed what happened. Uh, <laughs> yes, you were you was in Kiev, uh, Texas. So, this uh, Russia became uh, uh, prime minister after winning uh, leadership race in Conservative Party, which was in July August of this year, and uh, they were. His rivals were truly important politicians in Britain. For example, Tom Dagenhut. Uh, he was uh, for five years the chair of Parliamentary International Relations Committee, and Tom Dagenhut uh, was very active uh, in his uh, anti-Russian position. He said that Russia is a threat. We need to we need to have more sanctions against Russia. And uh, he established uh, China Research Group in 2020. So yes, Tom Dagenhut, also uh, Penny Mordaunt. Uh, she was the first uh, woman uh, Minister of Defense. Uh, she was the Minister of Defense of, of Britain during this short period uh, between uh, the re- resigning of Theresa May and. Uh, Uh, when uh, Boris Johnson became uh, the Prime Minister this, uh, during May, uh, July of 2019. Also, like, uh, Rishi Sunak was the main rival of Liz Truss, and uh, one of main uh, problems in Britain, however, I'm not in Britain, but I <laughs> can talk about Britain a lot, uh, so uh, it's inflation, it's high wages, high prices, Oh, sorry, high prices, and uh, it's due to the Russian full-scale version of Ukraine because uh, it broke uh, all these uh, global trade chains, and so all uh, food uh, became uh, uh, the price of food became more high, and so why uh, British politicians uh, had to figure out of this crisis, of this economic and energy crisis, and so. Uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, he was the chancellor, like Minister of fin- Finance in Britain, and he decided that there will be more taxes, more taxation. It's not normal situation when uh, conservatives uh, make high taxes for the people. And so uh, Liz Truss, uh, she was very active more on foreign Uh, affairs stuff. Uh, she told that uh, Russia is a threat, uh, China is a threat. We need to provide support for Ukraine, and uh, and uh, Rishi Sunak. Uh, he was talking during his electoral campaign only about economics. So okay, I will make taxes low, uh, but uh, not in not in very fast way. So. Uh, Like uh, the main difference between Truss and Sunak was that Sunak would do it not faster and not so radical as Truss wanted to do it. And so uh, on the 5th of September, Truss became uh, the Prime Minister of Great Britain and he uh, was the last 
Prime Minister of Elizabeth II, a British monarch, and uh, she wanted uh, uh, she wanted uh, to that all uh, payments for communal services will remain uh, the same for the next two years. Like uh, Britons will pay the same uh, price like 2,500 pounds for the year, yes, communal services, until the October of uh, 2024. It was a radical idea, and also uh, Trust uh, wanted to make uh, low taxes. But uh, the first uh, chancellor, like Minister of Finance in Trust cabinet, uh, there were some problems with him, and so uh, he resigned. Uh, and Jeremy Hunt, uh, that uh, former uh, British foreign minister, became uh, the chancellor, and uh, he uh, he cancelled all uh, like cancel culture of all uh, Liz Truss economic ideas. So uh, there will be no uh, this uh, uh, for two years. Uh, this standard uh, price for communal services that will be maybe for one year, so for six months, and so so on. And uh, trust uh, wanted also that uh, Britain will become uh, not uh, importer of energy but uh, exporter of energy uh, during the period until twenty uh, forty. Yes, in 18 years. But uh, Jeremy Hunt uh, was that politician uh, who ruined uh, the primership uh, of his trust. And uh, when she saw that uh, she couldn't figure out this economic crisis, this uh, high uh, taxation, uh, she decided to resign. And... Uh, there was one solution that there will be another <laughs> elections of the leader of the Conservative Party, and uh, Boris Johnson uh, he wanted to be uh, the candidate there, but then uh, he met with Rishi Sunak, and then uh, Rishi Sunak was the only candidate who actually became the British Prime Minister on the 25th of October. And so um, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, told that uh, his first uh, official visit as a prime minister will be to Kiev. And uh, it was actually what he said. Uh, yes, uh, he visited the uh, G20 summit uh, in Bali. He visited uh, COP27 in Sharman Sheikh, this uh, the United Nations climate uh, conference of the parties. But his first official visit was to Kiev uh, at the end of November with the first snow in Ukraine. So, uh, yes, uh, there are some accusations of his wife that her company is connected with Russia, so the company is still working in Russia, but I am pretty sure that uh, no matter who is 
the Prime Minister of Britain, the level of support uh, will be the same uh, very high. Yes, the Conservatives are not so popular now in Britain, and they are in power for already 12 years. And uh, new Labour leader, Keir Starmer, he is uh, not so radical in his ideas as Jeremy Corbyn was. He is like uh, some kind of version of European Social Democrats. But at the same time, uh, conservatives are not uh, so powerful, political power as they were. Yes, partly it's because of uh, Boris Johnson's scandals uh, with uh, lockdown parties, uh, with uh, different other stories, with Dominic Cummings, scandals and all other. So, uh, as uh, Ben Wallace said to me uh, in Brussels when I asked him about the operation Interflex, so operation Interflex is a new training program, uh, UK-based uh, tra- uh, training program, and uh, other NATO and non-NATO countries uh, participating in it, for example, Canada, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, uh, Lithuania, Australia, New Zealand. I couldn't have uh, imagined that uh, like one year ago that Australia will provide Ukraine with military support. It was unimaginable, unimaginable. Uh, And so uh, I asked uh, Ben Wallace when I was during NATO defense ministerial in Brussels at NATO HQ about this oppression in flex, what will be next? And uh, he answered that uh, we are ready to train not only 10,000 of uh, Ukrainian servicemen, but 20 and 30 is not a problem for Britain. And what is more important for us is that Ben Wallace remains Minister of Defense in Britain. And yes, he is one of friends of Ukraine. And I, uh, I had a chance to tell him if he was about Stefan Terleski and uh, he asked me from uh, what part of Ukraine uh, I I am from, and I told him about from central Ukraine, Poltava region, and uh, then he told me, uh, are there any castles? Uh, I told him uh, most uh, castles in Ukraine are in the western part. <laughs> yeah, so. Finally, I want to say that I am very grateful personally for Great Britain and British people. And for me, it's a big proud to research your history and our common history. And uh, our common task is to make these bilateral encounters, relations, links uh, more uh, visible in the public sphere, in media, in social media, especially here on Twitter, I will write uh, some buzzer, buzzer information, buzzer, <laughs> on uh, Ukraine DAO 
particular page on the website. So please follow our page. Dopovic Zakinsev. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so we started this page today that's going to be dedicated to UK-Ukraine relations. Uh, Yehora is very passionate about exploring the connections. I think there is a lot of value in that. And we talked about it a lot when um, I was in Ukraine at Kivtech Summit. And that's something that will be working with Yemon. And uh, I'm very grateful that we have... Um, we can use your knowledge uh, to Ukraine's advantage. Does anybody have questions or actually like it would be nice if somebody joined us on stage to chat a little bit? Uh, I'm going to send out a couple invites to put people on the spot maybe, but feel free whoever wants to ask a question or, or share anything that you know, um, it would be highly appreciated. Yehor, how do you think um, what do, what do you think is would be specific to the UK when communicating, um, but when advocating for support for Ukraine? Uh, well, I will say that uh, human rights violations. Britain is famous for its judicial culture, for its laws. I, I would see like more engagement of British lawyers in uh, the investigations of Russian war crimes in Ukraine, e except British military support, this uh, and law system, M270 uh, artillery system, uh, except operation uh, flex. Britain planned to invest in uh, alternative uh, in renewables Crimea just before uh, the Russian occupation uh, eight years ago. For us, it's very important is that uh, the reproduction of Ukraine will be not just uh, that some countries will give uh, Ukraine money and we will rebuild our uh, hospitals, schools, uh, residential buildings, all those uh, civilian uh, objects uh, which were destroyed by uh, the Russian army, by the Russian missiles and uh, bombs, but uh, to uh, form uh, a new Ukrainian economy which will be based uh, on uh, the rule of law, on uh, uh, economic competition and uh, with uh, less uh, influence of oligarchs. That's the main task. So that uh, Ukraine, uh, the UK, uh, might become uh, one of main uh, investors, like private investors, because the reconstruction is not about uh, some government uh, financial aid. It's about private. So uh, what is also uh, uh, what is also important about uh, the British role uh, in uh, Ukraine's reconstruction and also in providing the help of Ukraine is that uh, in Ukraine uh, we must uh, finish the reforms of uh, the judicial reform, the decentralization reform, 
and uh, the reform of corporate governance because without uh, this reform uh, we would not uh, have uh, the foreign investment. Only after the reforming of the country, yes, it's hard to do during the war, but uh, we need to do it because without this reform we wouldn't get we wouldn't get any proper aid. It's not. It's not uh, just for the funding. I think it's uh, to make uh, the state better, to make our country better yes. in the first place. Yes, yes, yes. Because unfortunately, we saw that uh, some oligarchs uh, left uh, the country, and uh, why those uh, people who were spreading for the last eight years pro-Russian narratives in Ukrainian in media here in Ukraine uh, they must be in jail but not uh, abroad so this is also the question where Britain might help uh, maybe through the national police some Interpol some other maybe organization because this is the main like problem and uh, Britain is that country like where where the law is above of all us. The rule of law is um, yes. observed, I would say. I would yes. say it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for this overview. That was great. And uh, I found out a lot of new stuff. And hopefully, so did everyone else. I'm going to give a little update. Uh, on the <laughs> recent development. Oh, Ola is joining as well. Um, so I've got a couple news uh, to share. So first of all, um, oh God, one second, I'll pull up the things that I shared yesterday with the team. So first of all, we are going to have a podcast at Twitter Space um, with Benjamin uh, Talis on Tuesday at... 8 p.m. Kiev time, I think. And so it's going to be about Germany. He is an expert on Germany, writes a lot of um, really good commentary on politics. And uh, some of my favorite materials on Germany were written by him. And so he's British. Um, so very excited to have that conversation. I've been trying to organize it for a long time. Uh, we were both busy. And so it, we kept pushing back. And on Tuesday, it's finally happening. So um, I'll, I'll put up in the nest as well the announcement about it. Then also, very important, uh, we now have a podcast on um, uh, Spotify and Apple uh, podcasts. So you can um, you can catch up without with the spaces. We'll be uploading the previous one, the past ones um, as well. And so like all our Twitter spaces will now be uh, recorded and put up uh, there as a podcast. So. I'll share that in the nest as well one more time. Uh, hello, Ola. Hello. Привет. 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 How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I was actually uh, speaking to my sister for the last hour and managed to pull her into Twitter finally. So it was my great achievement. <laughs> oh, I feel sorry for your for your for your sister. Um, I feel like people when they come into Twitter, they don't know what's uh, what's waiting for them, and it's not in some, not always a nice experience. 
How would you do that to, to someone? Pre- I was trying to prepare her because uh, Sparkles was asking me for some Ukrainians in Ukraine. <laughs> and I was like, yay, I finally made it. Um, yeah, so that's one thing. And uh, related to the uh, Twitter space and the discussion and having Lihor here, um, so I was recently reading the article on uh, BBC uh, which was saying about the uh, Ukrainian refugees that at the moment what I understood that there is no more financial aid for housing of the Ukrainian refugees in England and I wanted to ask uh, if by any chance you have any updates or any information on that like the Ukrainian refugees that went to England, are they going to have any kind of like support from UK government? And uh, like, what is their status now? I saw that like some people would be rehousing them and stuff, but like maybe you have more information about that would be nice to hear more information. Thank you. Well, I, I don't feel so much information, but what I know is that Britain uh, signed uh, 100,000 of visas for Ukrainians, Home Office signed it, and like there are three types of programs for Ukrainian refugees. First one uh, is that uh, rejoining program, so that uh, Ukrainians uh, who had uh, some relatives in Britain or, uh, and so on, they could uh, uh, could uh, could move to Britain. Uh, the second one uh, was uh, is connected with uh, actually this housing scheme. So, like uh, Ukrainians could uh, become. Uh, refugee in Britain uh, with the help of either central government, Westminster, or Welsh and Scottish governments, uh, so like uh, they could live uh, throughout the country. And uh, and the third theme is about uh, the people who have had uh, before the full-scale invasion uh, permission to work in Britain and so those people uh, could uh, extend uh, this permission for more period. Uh, I don't have so much actual information but uh, uh, I think that this is the main task of Ukrainian embassy and our Ukrainian ambassador to Britain Vatim Prostaiko and uh, this is uh, like Ukrainian question became uh, uh, the one in British politics, and uh, that is something uh, which will be used also in the next uh, election. We will be in two years, and uh, we all hope that uh, Ukrainian victory will be before these elections and there will be no snap elections because when there will be snap elections right now uh, labor will win and uh, uh, Tory will lose and uh, 
everyone in the conservative party understand it but what i know is that for example some uh, people uh, who were uh, involved who were connected with uh, cambridge university ukrainian society oxford university ukrainian society all those association ukrainians who studied in britain um uh, they moved uh, to britain since february 24th and uh, i uh, think that there is a good opportunity to uh, have more ukrainian voices in britain uh, so that the british people will know and understand more ukrainian situation from within so it's uh, unfortunately due to the circumstances of war but uh, we have to work more actively in britain and what i see is that we need to do more especially in terms of uh, this uh, bilateral stuff and all other about what uh, i was talking today in twitter Uh, thank you all uh, for your question. I can ask uh, those people whom I know, who are in Britain now, who moved to Britain after the February 24th, and maybe uh, then I will, uh, then uh, they will have Twitter space here. I think I think Ukrainian diaspora in, in the UK is actually very active. Um, we have this really cool um, cultural center here. It's called the Ukrainian Institute London. I'll put up the link to it in the nest. And uh, they do a lot of um, cultural diplomacy. They organize a lot of events online and offline. And actually, I want to invite you to the one of the f- next ones. It was inspired by the Twitter space that we had the other day. It was dedicated to the, the Ukrainian language and its role in our culture and languages in general it's also available as a podcast right now and so there's that twitter space was co-hosted by uh, my friend tom who is australian he's greek australian but he now lives in kiev and uh we spoke about surjik by the way yehor we came up with this (laughs) we came up with this uh, regular event that we want to implement it's going to be weekly lessons of surjik Because some of our community members, unfortunately, are not fluent in Surzhik. And so they can speak pure Ukrainian, um, but uh, they are not, um, you know, very well versed in uh, in Surzhik. So we want to teach them I, I, I uh, how to I speak can, I, various uh, Surzhik variations so that uh, they can... Um, you know, <laughs> they can acquire this skill as well. And so Tom recommended this uh, event that you can find by subscribing to our calendar on the events page. I'll put it up in the nest as well. Um, sub- by the way, subscribe to the calendar just because that way all our events will be appearing in your calendar automatically. And so you will uh, never miss the upcoming spaces and other events. Like we, we add to the calendar whatever events we find interesting, whether offline or, or online, and doesn't matter who they're organized by. Um, so, yeah, uh, so I wanted to mention that one. And so there is going to be an event uh, dedicated to, like, intricacies of uh, language. It's, I think it's called, yeah, about uh, misconceptions about languages in Ukraine. 
So that's going to be an interesting one. It's free. It's going to be online. Uh, so feel free to sign up. I think that'll be um, a really good thing to attend. Um, so yeah, that's Ukrainian Institute London. And then we also have like Ukrainian Social Club. It's a really fun place because it's a it's a it's a place in it's like a cafe and a cultural center in uh, in West London, and it's uh, looks from the outside. It's in the really posh area, and then you come in, and it's like you teleported into <laughs> like a Ukrainian um, village, uh, like cafe kind of place, and there is this tortichka. Uh, there is the only word I can describe her. And she is so rude, you know, she is like just so mean to you. And I honestly, I adore her, like, because nobody in the UK is ever, so, is ever as rude as this Tetschka. And she she looks at you like you owe her money, you know, and she's like, no, show them. <laughs> and every time she says it, my, my it just fills my heart with joy because you really miss this kind of character in the UK where everybody is like friendly, but they don't necessarily like you. They're smiling to you. And uh, yeah, she, it's just so endearing to, to be there. Um, so I often go there. It's not that far from where I live. And uh, they have like very reasonably priced the whole sea and borscht and Varanaki. They have everything. Uh, so yeah, Sasha and I are frequent visitors in there. And they also have different like events there as well um but in general like yeah ukrainian diaspora in london i think it's uh they're very very active and uh in the past like i would uh always go with my friends um as, when it's independence day we always getting together with the local diaspora um then my friends also run um a really cool kids um, i'm not sure about now maybe they have expanded to other areas but i skydived for them for charity for charities raise funds a couple of years ago it was very cool um and uh, since Oleksinsov also came to visit a couple years ago, we would always have like letter writing parties before that uh, to write to political prisoners in um, in Ukrainian political prisoners in Russia. Um, so yeah, we do a lot of uh, things here. Um, I'm yet to like, uh, properly collaborate with the with the local uh, volunteer networks because I've been focusing on Ukraine now, but I know that other people are very, very active. A uh, lot of my friends are doing like a lot of really cool stuff um, all the time. So yeah, in terms of like, of, of course we can always do more, but uh, in general, like I'm quite happy with how um, active the local Ukrainians are. Um, so God, I was in the middle of uh, the update uh, with uh, when Ola joined, I also want to mention that there is a book that came out about us. Well, it's uh, it covers other DAOs as well, but it was inspired by Ukraine DAO. So um, that's very cool. I will put it up in the nest, the link to it. It's free. You can read the whole book for free. DAO researchers from Harvard University. They are researching various DAOs to then inform policymakers in the US. So... We've had a few calls with them. I also introduced them to Maral from Iran Dao. She had the call with the, me and the researchers. They found it very inspiring how like DAOs are now different, different DAOs for different political causes are popping up um, as like as an extension of Ukraine DAO. What else? Right now that Twitter is not functioning very well because it's been 
occupied by this man who's a little bit unstable, we are exploring other ways to host conversations. And so one of the options is Clubhouse. It's not, uh, I, I don't know how ideal it is for our purposes. Haven't spent much, much time on it recently, but we also, um, yeah, we are also looking for other options. And so if you know of other platforms that can replace Twitter spaces potentially, just so that we have like a plan B and plan C, please do let us know. Um, we, are, we obviously have a Mastodon um, server um, and social media in general will have to decentralize a little bit um, because what's happening on Twitter at the moment is just uh, a little bit crazy. Um, and we see a different uh, far-right accounts that have been suspended for a long time being restored. They're all like uh, kind of organizing and lumping into groups, uh, hosting Twitter spaces about Ukraine that uh, sometimes not not uh, co-hosted by Ukrainians and uh, don't really take Ukraine into account. And sometimes they straight up spread disinformation about Ukraine as well. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> the situation with Twitter has been a little bit, uh, a little bit miserable um, in Ukraine. At the moment, uh, things are not uh, well. Today, I think there was a lot of strikes and uh, I've not been following the news very much, uh, but I am making a few videos with subtitles that I'll put up uh, that I think it's really important to share them. Um, but I haven't completed them yet, That's which is why I've not, <laughs> which is why I'm not very in, updated on the news. But Yehora or Ola or whoever else has an update, please feel free to share it. Turjik, Turjik is uh, a mix of uh, Ukrainian and Russian. So when you like speak Ukrainian, but you use unconsciously Russian words, so it's very popular uh, in uh, central Ukraine, Poltava region, Cherkasa region, so you can talk uh, with pure Ukrainian words, using only Ukrainian words, but some of Russian words will be like, this is the uh, which uh, makes Turzik very special. <laughs> hey, can you hear me now? Yes. Yay, amazing. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, that was my phone as usual. I always get a couple annoyed messages after our spaces asking what is wrong with my phone and how to fix it. I do not know. Um, but yeah, sorry, sorry to, to interrupt you. I just couldn't hear you guys. So I didn't mean to be rude. <laughs> yeah, so I was talking that I can teach Tom Surzik uh, because I'm from Poltava region. Oh, you're going to be our Surjik tutor then. There is no better, no better Surjik. Okay. Uh, is uh, Tom, uh, is he in Kiev now? Yes, he is based in Kiev. He is an independent journalist who uh, consciously moved uh, to Kiev. Uh, he, well, he'd been to Ukraine many times before um, over... Uh, probably like I don't know eight or ten years, uh, but uh, he's yeah he I I think when I met him, it was um, he was still in Australia and he moved uh, to Kiev and he's uh, suffering all the consequences together with Ukrainians, which I find really cool. 
I mean, not not that he is suffering, but that he's uh, that he decided to move um, that such a difficult time for Ukraine. That's what I meant. Have you never spoken to him? No, uh, actually, I uh, I can't use the name vacation, but I need to take a rest like annually, like I have almost a month in my main job. The information and the Ukrainian MOD army inform army inform. So I hope that I will spend my holidays in my hometown, Lubny. It's Poltava region, 200 kilometers from Kiev, and uh, 300 kilometers from Kharkiv. It's just uh, in the center between uh, Kiev and Kharkiv. So you're going to have a vacation, you said you meant. Yes, yes. Vacation that's, that's exciting. And, and, and home. <laughs> oh boy. Um well I hope you enjoy it. Let us know how it goes. Um so the next space I think is going to be on well the planned one is on Tuesday, but obviously we can have another one at any time and probably will. Um and uh yeah, uh, let us know if um you have anything to share? Oh, uh, also, I started a community. Um, I started. I made the Ukraine DAO community on Twitter after seeing uh, Diana uh, use uh, her one to um, like post updates there. So feel free to join it. I'm going to put up the link in the nest and in the replies. So yeah, you will need to. I'll need to I'll need to accept you um, so let me pull up the link to that as well and also our poor Ukraine UK for UA is getting attacked today so please uh, show him send him a, a loving message because um, he, he, he's he, he, he's not one of the people who deserves to be attacked by online trolls uh, and I know that he takes it very, very close, you know, close to heart. So make sure to uh, send him uh, something nice, you know, a me- message that's loving. <laughs> so, yeah, I with him to Ukraine twice this summer. Uh, and I also, um, very, I'm very grateful to him that he helped me sort out the generator for my parents as well. So, um He's, uh, he's doing very, very cool work all, all the time he's on the road. Um, so wanted to mention him too. Um, otherwise, thank you very much for joining, guys. And thank you, Ior, for sharing all your knowledge with us uh, today. Uh, I'm very excited for you to make that page about UK-Ukraine relations. And also, we really need to send out that Russian em- embassy back to Russia because that is the most embarrassing thing about <laughs> about London that exists. They are absolutely horrible guys. Um, so yeah, uh, if you have any ideas, Yehor, for how we can help help them to go home, uh, let us know as well. <laughs> but I won't say it publicly here on Twitter. <laughs> Well, DM, DM me, DM me your ideas, and I won't tell anyone. I promise. <laughs> and, uh, please uh, check out uh, the new clip, the new clip of Christina Solovey. Uh, his romantic scene with Sergei Zhidan, one of the most greatest uh, Ukrainian writers, poets, and musicians. 
Кристина Соловій, Юні. Кристина Соловій, Ю. All shares, 100% super. Thank you very much. I'll look at that. Um, well, I think we'll be wrapping up here uh, at this point. Thank you guys for joining. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to, to our podcast and uh, give us a five-star review. Hopefully. <laughs> Yohor, uh, do you have a closing comment? And uh, Ola, feel free, to, feel free to share it right now. I am very grateful for you, Alona, about hosting uh, these spaces and it's really very important work you are doing and your team as well. I am proud that I can work with you. Maybe I will write it in my future memoirs. <laughs> yeah, so uh, and uh, discover Ukraine, uh, discover Britain, discover British-Ukrainian relations is our common task because when we will understand why it was so done in the past we will uh, plan what to do next and Britain is truly one of Ukraine's partners, friends and uh, those countries uh, who support us a lot Oh, thank you very much Yohar, I also think that UK, the UK is a very, a very valuable partner to Ukraine, and it's a relationship that uh, deserves to be fostered. Olishka, do you have a comment? Thank you. Uh, sorry, I was um, actually very interested by the conversation. I'm sorry that I joined a bit late, and I missed, but I'm gonna re-listen because uh, your donor spaces. I'm always listening to them, even if I missed, because they are very informative and very interesting. And I think everybody, if you miss guys the start or something, just listen to them again because uh, the topics that are raised are, I feel, very important. And uh, thank you for inviting such a great, great guests. Thank you for coming to this space. It was very interesting to listen to you and all the information that you share. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the listeners. Um, who are attending and I'm super great that the spaces are back I did uh, move to um, Clubhouse but I deleted the app before because I was so annoyed by it <laughs> and I was so glad that there are spaces in Twitter and now I had to reinstall it so it was like a, a comeback yeah, um, but I'm actually, glad that uh, everybody's back here <laughs> And it's good to be back it's here. Super exciting that it's back. Yeah, yeah. I'll still, uh, I'm still keeping our small community in the clubhouse. So it's always good to have the backup there. And thank you, Sparkles, and you guys to organize it. And it's like super cool that it was done so promptly and everybody just got in. It's very exciting to see all of this like fast reaction to all the Elon Musk movements. And uh, I kind of give me the belief that even if Twitter dies tomorrow, we're still not going to lose each other because all these people that we met through the war, through the big invasion period here, um, I think they're amazing and it's always good to see them the familiar faces here and to see the new faces here as well and uh, Aleona 
your spaces are always top notch. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think it's because they are Ukraine centric. So they are very. Yes, I do. I <laughs> that, do. That's the reason why. Uh, and also, Tanya and Bunny space is excellent. It's every Saturday. A very good space, always. And the Ukrainian voices, the Ukrainian spaces um, by Maxim Ristavi and uh, Valeria Vashevska, they are also, also great. So I'll make sure to uh, follow them and join them. Uh, we, we made a page about um, U U Ukrainian uh, podcasts uh, by other uh, journalists and activists and just, uh, you know, Ukrainian people that are often over overlooked, but their perspective is super valuable. So make sure to follow them. I'll share it. I'll retweet it now as well. Um, and we'll be, uh, yeah, we'll be with you at least on uh, on Tuesday. With Benjamin Dalis, um, make sure to uh, join us. Thank you very much, guys, and have a good night. Slava Ukraini. Hello, Slava.